Welcome to the 2020 Baby Podcast. I'm Pamela Douglas, and my guest today down the phone is Melbourne-based neonatal paediatrician, Dr. Danielle Freeman. We're planning to have a chat about breastfeeding in the first days and weeks of life. And uh, Danny, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Pam. Thank you so much for having me. So how are you? How have you been travelling through this very strange year of of COVID-19? Yeah, it certainly has been a strange year, hasn't it? And I'm pleased to say that I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I guess, you know, four months ago when all of this was starting, uh, myself and my medical colleagues had a very uneasy feeling as we were watching the outbreaks in Italy and Spain and the USA. So I guess... The, you know, a few months down the track, I'm feeling quite relieved and grateful to live in Australia, given that we've been relatively spared from the virus. Mm. And I'm pretty interested to see what the new normal will look like. But I'm also quite saddened by the effect of the pandemic on many of the industries that I love, like tourism and the arts and hospitality. Yes. Uh, so that's been a big challenge. Uh, but I guess from a personal point of view, I've been enjoying the quieter pace and uh, I've been very lucky to be able to continue seeing my patients both face-to-face and via telehealth, which has been quite fun despite its limitations. Uh, And in my spare time, I've quite enjoyed the simpler things. So I've taken up some new hobbies and carried out some old ones and I've been doing lots of gardening and cooking and exercise and reading. Mm. The um, the slowing of the pace of life, I guess, has been the gift to many of us in the midst of what has been, of course, such a profoundly concerning time. Well, Danny, I wonder if if I could ask you now to tell our listeners about your professional background. Sure, Pam. So I'm a neonatologist, which is a big word for a paediatrician who specialises in newborn babies. Um, And I was born in Melbourne and grew up in Melbourne and was very lucky to be accepted to study medicine at the University of Melbourne. And I guess I knew from a fairly early stage in my studies that I was interested in looking after children rather than adults. So straight after my internship at St Vincent's, I joined the paediatric training program at the Royal Children's Hospital and as a registrar, we all had to do a compulsory term in neonatology. Mm. And that's when I realised that I was interested in that field. And so I took on my advanced training, which was based in the neonatal intensive care units and also uh, in neonatal retrieval. And retrieval is probably the most exciting and one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever done. You know, going off in helicopters and retrieving and rescuing babies is pretty exciting so that was really enjoyable Mm. and then uh, after I completed my specialist training I went to Canada for a year to do a fellowship and when I returned I commenced my private practice which is what I've been doing for the last seven and a half years. Mm -hmm. Well Danny I'm also curious about your graduate diploma in health and medical law could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I come from a family with many lawyers in it, so I guess it's always been in my blood. And in actual fact, my grandmother, my father and I have all studied law at the University of Melbourne. 
Right. Uh, so that's pretty special. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so when yeah, when I was doing my advanced training in neonatology, I had to do some academic requirements as part of the program. So I thought it would be interesting to do a grad dip in health and medical law for that. And uh, I was lucky to be taught by some amazing world-renowned lecturers from both Melbourne and overseas. And I had the freedom to choose what to do my research papers in. And so I made them very relevant to my medical training. So I researched and wrote about things like neonatal organ donation. Uh, I looked at the emerging field back then of cell-free fetal DNA, which is now more commonly called as non-invasive perinatal screening, where you can find the blood of a fetus in a simple blood test on the mum, mm. uh, which is a really interesting field. Um, Two of my favourite topics was when I looked at the feasibility and safety of home birth in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I also wrote a paper on the law and ethics uh, around storage and usage of newborn screening samples. And with that paper, I was very lucky to present that uh, at a medico-legal conference in Greece, which was uh, an amazing trip. Mm. Um, but with the medical law, I think I mostly found it interesting to read about the laws that govern the healthcare system, but then that also got me thinking about and understanding that even though we've got these written laws, in medicine we also need to consider ethics and we need to consider individual moral codes and quite importantly is how society actually expects the doctor should behave and all of those factors come into it. Um, but in terms of relevance to my practice, I'm not actually working directly within the medico-legal field at the moment, but it's been really useful in my day-to-day -day practice and the way I think about and approach certain aspects. Mm, well, see, that's fascinating, I think. So, so at the moment, focus clinically as a neonatal paediatrician, and I wonder if you could just address for a minute what it is that you really like about being a neonatal paediatrician? Well, neonatology is a really broad field, uh, so it can really cater to all sorts of interests and little niche things that people like. So for me, the things I love about it is that it involves genetics and it involves ethics and it involves communication and also some very precise medical procedures, which I do really love. Mm. Um, um, it's a real privilege to work with families and it's also a privilege to be able to make a difference, particularly from a medical perspective that could actually have a lifetime impact. Uh, and I feel really lucky to be involved with parents at one of the most important times in their lives. Uh, but of course, there can be some really tragic moments. And I think it's a really important part of my role to help families through these as well. Yeah, yeah. So Danny, how many newborns would you say you've worked with over the years? I think that the answer to that, Pam, would be lots. And if, I, if I stop to think about it, it's, it's probably something around 8,000. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I've, I've also been really lucky to look after many siblings from the same family. So uh, it's nice to be part of a growing family's journey and story as well. Well, that's a compliment, I think, to your practice. People are coming back um, seeking Thank your you. care for the second and third and so on. Danny, I wonder if you could talk to me about the things that you're really passionate about professionally. Sure. Well, after spending a lot of time working in intensive care and looking after mainly very sick babies, my career evolved 
sort of on its own and it eventually led me to looking after mainly normal babies and I did this mainly in private maternity hospitals and these days while I still look after some really unwell babies my passions are now focused on helping parents and babies in the first days and weeks of life normalizing newborn behavior avoiding conflicting advice and information and very importantly empowering mothers to achieve their feeding goals great Danny, as you know, my background is as a GP, GP lactation consultant, breastfeeding medicine um, specialist. We know that at birth in Australia, 96% of women are, are wanting to breastfeed their baby. And yet by the end of that first seven days of life, only 80% of women are able to do this exclusively. What do you think needs to be done differently? What are you seeing happening in these these first hours and days of life? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a really big topic, Pam, and as you mentioned, it's something that you and I, I think, uh, are both quite passionate about and have had lots of observations. So I guess, firstly, it's important to say that there are some babies who do have serious illness straight after birth or in the first days and weeks of life, and this is obviously a really stressful time for parents, but it's not the topic of today's conversation, and Fortunately, that scenario is quite rare as most babies are normal. And what's really interesting, Pam, is that I didn't learn very much at all in my medical training about normal babies. Mm. And the vast majority of what I do know has been purely learnt through observation. And mm. on the wards, I also realised that there are really big gaps in knowledge for the parents and the staff on the ward uh, because I would see mothers in tears and sometimes fathers on the second or third morning with their normal healthy baby and having spent many years looking after really sick babies I was I asked I said why why are you crying because they had a lovely normal healthy baby and I saw the same repeated answers of they were worried that the baby had been awake all night and that it had been wanting to feed all night and it mustn't be getting enough milk and the new mums were also exhausted and they were really confused by all the different things that they were being told by the staff on the ward yeah. So after I was after I looked after a hundred, five hundred, one thousand babies, and you know, if you keep your eyes open, you start to notice patterns and similarities in their behaviour after birth. But I also realised that they're all unique individuals, and that normality is an extremely diverse condition. And I guess it's not possible to write a protocol about how a baby should behave after birth, just like it's not possible to write a protocol for every woman's pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, and I think it's really important that people caring for mothers and babies are able to realise that and provide individualised care uh, for, the, for the mother and the baby and the family in front of them at that time. Um, so I think that's something really important. But we also seem to be caught in a medical model where we're often tempted to look for what's wrong. So... I personally try wherever possible to look for and celebrate what's right and I tell my patients that I'm doing that and I also teach them about the bell curve of normal, uh, that little picture that can fit a lot of stuff underneath it and I try to paint a general picture of what to expect in the coming days while establishing breastfeeding rather than list something very didactic that is often going to lead to some sort of failure in expectation. 
Mm, that sounds as though your your um, patients are really um, fortunate to have this kind of wise um, support. Oh, thank, thank you, Pam. Mm, mm. And I know that you and I have corresponded in the past about um, breastfeeding in the first days of life and if you'd like I can sort of talk to you about my little take on it and mention some of the things that I think we can do. Very keen, Danny, to hear you address this. So I actually think, and I'm not a lactation consultant like yourself, but I think as a concept, breastfeeding is quite simple, but it's not always easy in practice, as we both know. Uh, And from a simplistic point of view, it requires two things, the milk and the technique, and I like to call the technique the dance. And I tell new mums that the milk comes if there's lots of dancing in the first days of life. And of course, like any new skill, it takes time and patience and lots of practice. So as an overarching sort of principle, I think in order to help new mothers achieve success with their breastfeeding intention, uh, which we're not kicking the goals of the percentages that we want, Uh, the things that we need to do are to provide a calm and supporting environment. Uh, I think we need to educate and inform mothers of what they should expect, which might also mean we need to educate our healthcare providers. And we need to, wherever possible, avoid giving conflicting advice. Um, So in terms of breastfeeding, and and I guess this conversation relates to a first-time mum because, again, provided that there's nothing significantly going on in terms of illness of the baby or the mother. I generally tell mothers who have breastfed successfully in the past, you will succeed again with your new dance partner. Uh, But this conversation really relates to establishing breastfeeding for the first time. Um, And I think that there is some sort of idea that babies are starving with hunger when they're born. Uh, I don't actually think that's true. I don't think that babies are born with a sense of hunger that you and I would understand that to be. Um, Because from a logical point of view, I think if they were, our highly evolved human race uh, would have would have actually uh, organised it so that women would be producing bottles full of milk straight after birth. Um, but they're not. They're only making a drop or two, so there must be a reason for mm, that. Introducing an evolutionary uh, perspective, really, yeah, on this. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so I kind of think that our race is way too smart that if we really were supposed to make that much milk on day one, we, we would. Mm. Um, so, so I don't think it's hunger, but babies certainly are born with a desire to suck. And that desire is not a conscious, I want to suck, because babies aren't that clever either, but it's a primitive reflex. Mm. Um, and it's a response to smelling their, their mum's hormones or what's called the pheromones. And so when babies come out and they want to suck, everyone's like, oh my God, they're hungry. Um, but again, from an evolutionary point of view, I actually, from observing this, a lot of babies have undergone a very long labour and sometimes an instrumental birth or an emergency caesarean section and they're racing with adrenaline and sucking actually soothes them. And the other thing I noticed is that um, the mothers who had a little bit of trickling of blood after birth, their babies were also really awake and looking to suck and that also makes sense because sucking on the breast contracts the mother's uterus and so perhaps, again, primitively, 
that initial fat is to save the mother's life by preventing her from excessive bleeding. Uh, of course, you know, these days most of us have our babies in a hospital where that's not going to occur, but it just makes sense from an adaptive point of view. So they want to suck after birth. And when they're born, again, if we think about it logically, the baby has just come out of a bag of fluids. So the baby's guts are literally full of amniotic fluid and meconium and all sorts of other stuff, literally from their mouth to their bottom. And so there's no room for lots of milk there. So only one or two drops of milk is needed initially for that baby's stomach and the bowels to start working so that they can swallow the fluid and vomit it up and poo out the meconium and get everything out so that when the milk does come in in a couple of days, there's some room for it. So I think that straight after birth, skin-to-skin contact and access to the breast as soon as possible is really important, but we shouldn't mistake that for that the baby is hungry or needs food immediately. And if we take it back to a really simplistic level, newborn babies enjoy sucking and they enjoy the warmth and the smell and the feel of their mothers, and it just so happens that it has a rather ingenious side effect of bringing in milk, which provides hydration and nutrition to the baby. So I think that that's mm. really clever about our race. Mm, very interesting perspectives to hear you um, offer, Danny. So what? And, is, and in, I'll let you sorry. continue on. Okay, I was just going to say that uh, the next few days uh, after that birth are quite predictable because a normal, healthy, full-term baby goes into a, uh, a programmed or a physiological dehydration in the first days of life while waiting for the milk. So as I've kind of alluded to, the baby needs to get all of that amniotic fluid and meconium out. And that, of course, then relates in some weight loss and some mild jaundice. So all of the babies, to a degree, have a form of weight loss, usually between 5 and 15%, depending on a variety of factors, which I'm sure we'll touch on a bit later. Mm. And most of the babies also have a bit of jaundice or a bit of yellowing of the skin. And so in the first days of life, um, most of the babies also I've observed are very sleepy during the day. So when I do my ward round during the day, the babies are wrapped up and nice and quiet. Uh, but the mothers have told me that the baby has been up all night feeding or trying to learn how to feed and that's because the mother's producing high levels of prolactin at that time and therefore the pheromones are being produced and the baby can smell this and it wakes the baby up and the baby wants to cluster feed and often in the middle of the night this is mistaken as unsettledness or severe hunger um, but in my opinion the evening and night time when, this, when the baby is awake and looking for the breast, that's when the mother and baby have the best opportunity to practice the technique or the dance of breastfeeding, provided she's had some rest during the day. And if you've ever visited a postnatal ward, you'd probably see why that could be quite tricky um, because during the day there are so many visitors and the doctors and nurses are doing their rounds and the physio comes and the meals are being dropped off and picked up. And it's really hard for the mother to rest while the baby's in the corner sleeping. So I've always thought that in the ideal world, there'd be minimal interruptions during the day on the ward. Um, and at night, we would allow the mums to learn how to breastfeed with lots of support because that is when the baby is awake and looking for it. So Pam, as the breasts are stimulated more and more in the first days of life, whereby we actually, you and I know that a baby is sucking on a mainly empty breast, 
that those first few drops of milk turn into a few drops more, which turns into a few more mils and a few more mils after that until the milk comes in. And my observation after seeing all these babies is that the absolute vast majority of babies cope very well through this period. Despite everyone being worried about them, they are often sucking voraciously with good stamina despite that we know that they're relatively dehydrated. There are some babies, though, who do become too sleepy or too jaundiced or lose excessive weight, however we might define that. And those babies do need to be assessed clinically, as should the breastfeeding technique and the milk supply. But I've actually found that it's quite rare that a normal full-term baby requires supplementation with formula in the first week or so of life. Uh, that doesn't say that they're not getting it, though. So in my practice, if mothers or midwives are feeling worried during this period, uh, rather than starting formula, you know, if, unless that's requested, I generally suggest that the mother commences expressing because I have noticed that new mothers feel very happy and relieved when they can see the milk coming out. Uh, and I think that that can be really helpful. And uh, in terms of problems with breastfeeding. As I mentioned before, breastfeeding is not always easy in practice. And I hear of a lot of perceived problems with breastfeeding in the first few days. So for example, is it something to do with the baby's mouth? Is it something to do with the shape of the breast? Does the baby have pain in its tummy? Is my baby too sleepy? Am I making enough milk? And they, they're all real perceived problems. But the main actual breastfeeding problem that I see is nipple damage. Mm. And the reason I see this is because and again, this is coming from a pediatric point of view, so it's the midwives who are dealing with this, but I, I and the lactation consultants, but the mums complain to me that their nipples are in pain and bleeding. And these are real problems that need to actually be tackled because all of that cluster feeding and dancing that I've just told you about, if we're doing that with a, um, improper latching or suboptimal attachment, then it really can cause a lot of damage. And by the time the milk comes in, in two or three days, the breasts are so sore and they're bleeding that the mother has to fully express and have time resting the breasts, which can also be tricky because that baby still wants to be on the breast all day. Yeah. Uh, and so if, if the baby's receiving express breast milk and say there's 10 mils or something and it drinks it in two minutes, uh, we've got an hour to cuddle the crying unsettled baby. So it's got its own... Um, it's got its own little tricks to it as well. Yeah, I might jump in there, Danny, because, of course, this issue of nipple pain and damage is huge, isn't it, and is a very important topic which we won't try to deal with in, in too much detail in our conversation today, but I'd just like to flag that... Um, women may be told to breastfeed through the pain or to count to 20. And there may be a certain percentage who are lucky enough to, um, you know, count to 20 to just tolerate initial pain and eventually it subsides. But there'll be um, many other women for whom actually the damage to the, to the nipples gets worse and worse and, and then this whole physiological dance that you're you're so beautifully describing is profoundly disrupted isn't it um and stories yeah and so of course um this is this is where i i have the view that that women have the right to be informed actually about the biomechanics of the suckling and and how to actually set it up if there's any discomfort at all to to 
deal with that breast tissue drag and get rid of it right from the very beginning so that we avoid this terrible trajectory of nipple pain, damage, disrupted breastfeeding. Um, but that's my little rave, Danny. I'll, I'll no, hand and back I, and to I you. Can, and, I can, and I completely agree with that. And on that note, the moment we add in the expressing, suddenly something that has been quite invisible in terms of how much milk is coming out, we, you know, a well baby and a well mother and everything's fine and dandy when we ask the mum to express because her breasts are very sore or for any other reason, uh, suddenly she sees that there's five mils and either she's worried that that's not enough or a, or a midwife is worried that's not enough and that is often when that slippery slope of, uh, of complementary feeding starts that sometimes never stops. And so on my personal point of view, I mentioned what I mentioned before, that the baby still wants the hour of cuddles so it might be that the mother has to give the express breast milk and then cuddle the baby for an hour, uh, put a finger or even a dummy in the mouth so the baby can have an hour of sucking or send the dad out to do laps of the postnatal ward because it's not necessarily because there was ever a supply issue, but we've suddenly seen the amount of milk, which then we start intellectualising. So mm. I've seen that happen time and time again. Um, but going back to what you originally asked me about what we can do differently, I think on this topic, my summary and my observations is that I, I actually think that if the mother and baby are kept together in a calm and supportive environment, the vast majority will successfully establish breastfeeding within seven to ten days of life. That's my, that's my true belief there. Mm. And whilst lots of deviations occur on that pathway, when a mother tells me that her intention is to exclusively breastfeed, that's where my empowering language comes in because in the absence of something actually being wrong, I think that it's achievable in the vast majority. Mm. Thanks, Danny. So I guess that brings us then to this um, grave and, and protective concern that the health professionals there on the wards have um, about weight loss and, you know, so it's that dance, isn't it, between what's acceptable, what's placing the baby at risk. Could you speak to that concern, Danny? Sure. So the, the weight loss uh, is, is, a, is a big thing and actually also can... Uh, lead to a whole lot of interventions. Yeah, so, can, can I, I jump in because yeah. I noticed you were saying five to fifteen percent is normal, but in fact, of course, ten percent is the figure that we, as as some um, doctors and midwives, have drilled into our brain as as um, the threshold for needing. Absolutely. To so introduce... I very purpose. I very purposely said five to fifteen percent because I don't. First of all, I don't really like rules when it comes to something that we know has such a diverse range of normality, such as the human condition or newborn babies. So mm. again, by observing lots and lots and lots of different babies, I realised that there are some babies who lose 5% and some who lose 15% and we have to look at the baby. So as we mentioned earlier, when a healthy baby is born, it's full of fluid and meconium. So the birth weight is actually really... It's, you know, it's the thing that we put on the cop card and send around to all of the relatives, but it's false in many ways. It's a wet weight. And um, IV so fluids, um, I presume that's, um, that's amplifying this, 
practice. Absolutely. So I don't think that the birth weight is a is a necessarily a true indication of the baby's weight percentile. And then every single baby loses weight. So some mothers are very shocked to hear this, which again shows that we've got a gap in knowledge perhaps of what we're delivering as healthcare professionals on the ward. So they're all very worried about the weight loss. So if we know that all babies lose weight, and from my observation, it's usually around 7 to 10% uh, in the first 48 hours of life, sometimes more, sometimes less. And as you mentioned, it's affected by many different factors. So, for example, a baby born uh, by cesarean section will usually uh, lose more weight because it's more full of water after uh, that type of birth rather than a vaginal birth where the baby has been wrung out. Uh, some of that fluid and as you mentioned if the mother's had an epidural or had lots of IV fluids during the labour the baby will lose a higher percent Uh, and I've even observed that the mothers who are extremely puffy with high blood pressure and swollen faces and ankles uh, around the time of delivery their babies are also a bit puffy and will lose a lot more weight so I do think that it's reasonable for there to be a percentage at which a medical review of the baby is triggered. So that 10% is perfectly reasonable. But we have to then manage that uh, on an individual uh, level. So we have to assess the baby in front of us. 20% of babies lose more than 10% of their birth weight. So how could something that's so common possibly be abnormal all the time? So. Mm. It's looking at the baby, it's looking at the breastfeeding technique, the milk supply, the clinical condition of the baby. And personally, if I had my way, and this might be controversial, I don't think we should weigh healthy babies in the first few days of life at all. We should maybe pretend that we're in the jungle somewhere without scales because those numbers and potentially the way it's delivered and if we say, let's see if your baby's put on weight. And remember, not the 70s anymore in seven-day stays, there's no expectation for any baby to put on weight in three or even five days. Um, That anxiety that's caused for the mothers and the staff lead to all of the interventions. And I'd rather that we focus on um, improving breastfeeding technique, looking for signs of supply and actually looking at the baby's clinical condition rather than the numbers on a scale. Mm. Thanks, Danny. So what would flag concern like what would make us worried about the degree of weight loss this just might be useful for any um, health professionals listening in as as well as parents and I understand we're talking about something complex here in complex clinical judgment aren't we Mm. Um, I think from a weight point of view uh, in a healthy full-term baby i don't think there's much relevance personally of the weight in those first couple of days days. in hospital. Mm -hmm. I tell all my parents, because most babies will get weighed twice if they're staying for, sorry, three times if they're staying for four four or so days, they'll have their birth weight and they'll have two more uh, re-weighs. And if it's a first-time mum, even a fully formula-fed baby uh, will have two weight losses. Mm. I'm expecting a loss and a loss. So... Um, when mums are going home from hospital, I'm expecting them to be still going home with weight loss. Um, but of course, we do need to see eventual weight gain. So the way that I guess I prime my parents because they're not going, I'm not going to see them the next day is that the feeding needs to continue to be um, 
you know, improved on in terms of the technique of the dance, there needs to be more sign of milk, i.e. the mother's breasts will feel engorged, uh, you know, she might see milk coming out of her breast and, of course, uh, the baby's poos will start turning yellow and we will see a weight gain soon. I generally like to see a weight gain at either the first or second weight done after discharge from hospital. So either the next day when the health nurse comes, it's nice if there's a plus. It's about day uh, four, by, is it day four, day five, yeah, you're saying? Yeah, yep. but certainly by the second one. And I, when I say a plus, plus five, plus 20 grams, plus 40 grams, just a plus. Mm. No prescriptive, just a plus, meaning that you've reached your, um, your nadir of negative and then suddenly we've got a, a plus. But, of course, they're all on different scales as well. Uh, and most of the funny weights I've seen have been because the scales have been uh, non-calibrated. So, Danny, what do parents need to know about meconium and the baby's stool in these first days? Sure. So meconium is that dark green tarry poo that babies pass in the first days of life and it's actually made up of all of the things that have been swallowed by the fetus while in the womb. So skin, hair, amniotic fluid. Um, most babies will pass their first meconium in the first 24 hours of life and then the vast majority within 48 hours. Um, if that first meconium occurs after 24 hours, that's labelled as delayed passage of meconium and that can rarely but sometimes be caused uh, by a problem with the bowel. So it definitely warrants assessment. Um, but I find that most babies who don't pass it in the first 24 certainly do within 48 hours. And then there are some babies that pass the meconium in the womb, and that's usually a sign of fetal distress. And from looking at all these normal babies over the years, some babies only have one really large meconium, others have 20, and both of those and everything in between are normal. So I do tell parents, because again, we start counting and measuring and having an expectation of what it should be. I tell parents that your baby was born with all of this meconium in them and whether it takes 20 dirty nappies or five dirty nappies to clear it, uh, it was already there. So the baby tends to pass that meconium and then there is a period whereby I guess there's a backup of milk behind it. So when the baby starts swallowing and digestive milk, that milk mixes with the dark tarry green. So it becomes a lighter green uh, and then as the meconium continues to be cleared then it's just milk which is usually yellow and that usually occurs by about day four or five of life but again there's a vast range of normal in terms of the color the amount the consistency the frequency so everyone uh, is, is worrying about their poo uh, but uh, some babies poo 20 times a day and then some babies poo every one or two weeks and it doesn't necessarily mean that that on its own is abnormal. Mm, thank you. And um, and then what about the amount of wee, the amount of urine that these little ones pass in those very first days? Yeah, so I've been told by lots of parents that they were told in their antenatal classes or read somewhere that there needs to be one on day one and two on day two and three on day three, but I, I'm sure you've gathered from that discussion that I don't really believe in, in rules when it comes to things like this because of the anxiety it causes if you don't fit into the rules. So yep. firstly, it's I've never seen a, a, a healthy baby who does not pass urine. So they all pass urine. It's really hard to see it amongst all the meconium sometimes in the first couple of uh, days of life. And 
we talked about the program dehydration. So while a baby uh, is going into that phase, they hold on to the urine. Um, so, you know, they're holding on to every drop of, of hydration, which is a normal response to being a bit dehydrated. And once the milk is in, the urine output increases. So healthy babies, once the milk is in, are having multiple wet nappies per day. Uh, but I generally don't, don't uh, encourage uh, parents to count or measure them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then that other important topic around the, the jaundice that you mentioned and sleepiness and how that might impact on the little one coming to the breast. Could you talk to that sure. for a minute, Danny? Sure. Well, there, there are some babies that become extremely jaundiced and require treatment with phototherapy or the, the blue light. Um, that's quite rare in the first days of life. And when it does occur, uh, it's most commonly due to a mismatch in the blood group between the mum and the baby. And that type of significant jaundice can cause sleepiness as a symptom. Uh, and then if you add to that, that the baby is often then separated from, from the mother by going to the special care nursery or by, by being placed in an isolate in the room, that can obviously uh, make establishing breastfeeding a bit challenging. And sometimes those babies do need to be supplemented uh, with either expressed breast milk or with formula. Uh, but most of the other babies have mild jaundice um, and in fact it's extremely rare to have no jaundice at all and sometimes it's really subtle sometimes it's just the whites of the eyes uh, but I don't if you did a blood test on every single baby on a postnatal ward I don't believe you would find a jaundice level of zero on any of them because it's actually a physiological jaundice so the best way to understand it I guess is that while the liver and the bowels uh, starting to kick in like a new computer like the rest of the body. Uh, they're waiting for milk in order to uh, go through their digestive processes. And I guess that's a really nice, simple way of trying to understand it, which is not, you know, just is quite simplistic, is that the yellow stuff that's going to be in the poo, because there's no milk for the liver to sort of squirt that yellow pigment into, it backs up in the bloodstream and it stains the skin. So that's a nice, easy way of trying to understand that that physiological jaundice. And midwives on postnatal wards, as well as paediatricians, are assessing that shift by shift. And if there are concerns about the level of jaundice, we can measure it. Um, but the mild jaundice, in my opinion, doesn't usually cause sleepiness per se. But as we discussed previously, the babies are generally sleepy in the day anyway, and wakeful at night due to their circadian rhythm and due to their mum's pheromones. So the main thing I encourage for those babies with the mild jaundice is to be near their mother as much as possible. Yes, thank you. So you're meaning they're either in arms or indeed skin to skin. Am I right, Danny, when you say that? Yes, yes, you are right, or even just so that the cot is literally right next to the mother so that the baby is as near as possible to the mother, especially at night. So when those smelly pheromones are uh, uh, coming out, the baby can smell the pheromones so that they wake up looking to suck. Yep. So, uh, yep. yep, thanks. I'd also like to check in with you about the uh, rule, I suppose, that we have as health professionals in our brain around um, needing to regain the birth weight by two weeks. Sometimes we'll sort of watch closely and it'll be three weeks. But I'm interested to hear your um, reflections 
on this, Danny. It's hard, isn't it, because we're also, as health professionals, so anxious to protect safety, but we we can also be unduly aggressive too with interventions yep, that's right. so often, can't we? So do you mind just talking about that too? Sure. Well, as I, I mentioned before, I like to see a plus at the first or second wait after discharge. So uh, going home and just having just gain, not necessarily back to birth weight, but a sign that we've, uh, we're past the hump. So uh, most babies do experience a plus at the first or second weight after discharge. Can That's I jump in? in when you're thinking, sorry to break in, but just that second okay. weight, roughly when are you um, thinking that happens? Because I think the home visits occur uh, differently um, between states well, I think as well. it's, also, it's also it's also different within Victoria so yeah <laughs> if, you, if you're um if you're in the public system often you're visited by a hospital midwife uh, daily or second daily after you're discharged uh, whereas the private ladies will go home on the fifth or so day and usually be visited by their health nurse within the next few days so mm. again I'm not putting a day limit on it if the baby is still on a on a minus, while that when they go to, uh, home from the hospital, I'm happy with one more minus, uh, but it would be very nice if the next one is a plus without yeah. being too prescriptive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so most babies do achieve that and most babies do regain their birth weight by about two weeks of age. That is, that is true. But again, no rules here. And I think that every mother and baby needs to be individually assessed rather than using a one-size-fits-all approach. So... For visiting midwives and health nurses, I think that if the baby looks healthy, uh, however we define that, which is another topic of conversation, but if the baby is healthy, if the mother has signs of because she's attached to a pump and she's pumping 40 mils or if she describes good milk supply uh, and if the baby is latching well, then I think we should feel confident that weight gain will occur if it hasn't yet and we should continue to monitor it. However, in terms of the safety thing and the risks, um, there are two really big red flags that shouldn't be ignored and that's static weight and weight loss. Mm. So static weight, in my in my uh, experience, is most often due to a supply issue, uh, but weight loss, if the scales are indeed correct, is never, ever normal uh, and it could actually be the sign of an infection or a metabolic condition uh, and those babies should be assessed as soon as possible by their GP or their paediatrician or emergency department. So mm. um, I think those two red flags are really important. And sorry, I should clarify, when I say weight loss, I'm talking about weight loss after we have already gained weight. So once we start having weight gain, any plus, that we should be followed by plus and plus and plus and plus until childhood. Uh, we shouldn't see weight loss unless the baby is sick. Yeah. Thanks, so, so those two are really uh, 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 big, um, big red flags. But there are also a whole subset of babies who are, inverted commas, slow to gain weight. Um, and lots of people quote to me that, you know, they were told that their baby didn't gain enough grams um, or didn't gain enough weight or didn't gain the expected amount of weight. So, again, I, I like to celebrate the fact that we've gained weight rather than not gained enough weight. So my approach to reviewing weight gain in those early 
days and weeks of life is a combination of looking at the feeding history, examining the babies and the actual weight on the scale. So it's a it's an overall picture. And rather than looking at grams per week, I much prefer to plot the weights on the growth chart and look at the trend and pattern, which in those first days and weeks is a is a tick shape because you have your initial wet birth weight and you then decrease and then you start to increase. So it's often like a nice tick. And I say to my parents when I'm quoted grams per week, um, I said, if you're on the third percentile, you need to gain far less grams per week to stay on that percentile than if you're on the 90th. So we can't categorize every single baby. Um, likewise, you can be really chubby and healthy growing on the third percentile and you can be really skinny and have poor weight gain but you're on the 90th so it really needs to be an individualized approach yes and we're talking about the who percentile charts here i i am yes i do i do prefer to use the who charts wherever possible but Mm. some uh, medical practice software uh, uses the CDC, I believe. Yes, it's true. And so I must admit, over the years, I'll then do my own plot on the side. Um, yeah. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so, Danny, how do we do that dance between ensuring safety for the newborn and not unnecessarily um, introducing formula? Well, that's a, a very, very good question, Pam. And um, I, like you, am probably quite concerned about how much unnecessary formula is given in the first days of life. And by unnecessary, I mean as a protocol-driven or direct response to, for example, the weight loss of greater than 10%. Because, of course, I told you and I am, am quite sort of passionate that I do empower mother's feeding goals. So if a mother needs to or wants to formula feed her baby, I will just as passionately help her introduce that, which is, again, a topic for another day because there's a lot, lots of pitfalls of introducing formula in the first days of life. But where a mother requests formula, as long as she's received the support and education, that's absolutely fine with me. But from this uh, unnecessary use of formula in mothers who intend to breastfeed, uh, I think that we need to be really careful because I think this is all about the gut microbiome, which is really important. And the gut microbiome is the environment of organisms inside the healthy gut, which is extremely important for our immune system. And it's also thought to be linked to our health in general. So this is an emerging field. There's lots of studies being done about the gut microbiome and it's all rapidly evolving. But um, I guess in terms of the principle for me, Everything we put into a baby's body, particularly in those very first few days and weeks, has an effect on the microbiome. And wherever possible, I think that breast milk should be the only thing we put in there unless we have a good reason not to. So um, I think that formula can have a negative effect on the gut microbiome and needs to be used with good reason. And a real interest and something to ponder is that we're seeing a lot of childhood allergy currently and increasing in recent years and I think that's due to a lot of possible causes but of interest uh, there seems to be a thought that possibly early sensitization of the gut to cow's milk protein in the formula might play a role so I found that really interesting to find out. Mm, mm. Yes thanks. So Danny I think um, there was one other topic I'm interested to 
discuss with you and it's around the baby friendly hospital initiative actually in in 2013 there was an Australian study that showed that the baby friendly hospital initiative actually didn't affect breastfeeding rates at one and four months in Queensland when it was being implemented in in the hospitals and maybe that's because the breastfeeding rates are already quite high here in Australia relative to other countries Mm -hmm. around the world. The study showed that 70 to 80 percent of mothers experienced some skin-to-skin contact, attempted breastfeeding in the first hour, rooming in, no in-hospital supplementation with formula. And 50% actually experienced all of those four. So I just wondered whether you had comments about um, the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative to share with us today. Sure. I think um, I think all of what you've mentioned comes back to many of the topics that we've discussed, but especially that women are just a discharged home just as things are starting to come together. So um, whilst the rates going home from hospital might be quite high, as we both know, once they leave the hospital, many parents find that they're introducing formula within two or three days of going home, either because they've been worried in the middle of the night or because um, a midwife or health nurse has suggested that they have. So whilst I send home most mothers with optimism and encouragement and sort of prime them for what the next few days and weeks will look like. The support that they receive in that first few weeks of life is really crucial because there's so much information out there and I think that there's a risk for new parents of seeking advice from too many different people during that time, whether that's the maternal child health nurse, lactation consultant, general practitioner, paediatrician, chiropractor, osteopath, the mother's group online... So all of these different people have got really good intentions, but undoubtedly they'll have different opinions and approaches and the parents can become very confused uh, and distressed in those, um, in those at that time. So I think that from our point of view, the, um, the baby-friendly hospital initiative should not end as you uh, leave the doors of the hospital. So uh, if the, I think the WHO definition is that a hospital implements practices that protect, promote and support breastfeeding. So my thoughts on that is that I definitely agree with it, but um, how it's carried out on a practical level is what matters most, regardless of the way that we label it. So I think that there's a lot more we can do uh, to educate midwives caring for mothers on the postnatal ward and more importantly, education of the mothers themselves, preferably in the antenatal period rather than in that exhausted, confused haze in the first couple of days of life. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, in the POSSUMS programs or Neuroprotective Developmental Care, we have a a two-hour When Baby Comes Home program that complements the usual antenatal classes and is particularly focused on our evidence-based NDC approach to supporting the breastfeeding and infant care more generally from from birth going on it's so so helping parents get oriented to what they might expect when that baby arrives in the world and then comes yeah. comes home you know Danny you were referring to the extraordinary amounts of conflicting advice that parents get around anything to do with caring for their baby but but around the breastfeeding in those first days and weeks of of life going onwards actually through through the 
first months of early life. And uh, I am often saying that that um, I don't believe this would be tolerated at any other time in the lifespan, this incredible amount of conflicting advice from health professionals across a range of disciplines or from within the one discipline. And it really speaks to how breastfeeding remains a research frontier, um, that the clinical support of that breastfeeding woman and her baby remains a research frontier. And given that we can send a robot to explore the surface of Mars, this is scandalous, really. Mm. So, Danny, did you have any um, comments you'd like to offer in conclusion? This has been such a rich conversation. Was there anything else you, you might add? Oh, look, it's a massive topic, Pam, and you know that we could probably talk about it all day and night and over a glass of wine or two. But Absolutely. I think, I think we've covered some of the big ones. But I, look, I guess my, my, my concluding remarks about all of this, if we had to summarise, is that uh, there can't be a one-size-fits-all approach to something that has such a range of diversity. Um, I think that the healthcare professionals caring for women and babies in the first days of life should be very mindful of this in their approach because it would allay their own anxiety too if we're looking at things and saying, well, if it's more than 10%, could they still be normal? And yes, most of the time, yes. So we, I think, need to focus on educating parents and healthcare professionals about normal baby behaviour so that we don't unintentionally introduce these unnecessary and potentially harmful interventions. Absolutely. So, Danny, it's, it's been such a delight to speak to you. I'd like to thank you very much for um, giving me the time. And oh, it's my pleasure, Pam. I look forward to visiting you in Melbourne um, once the borders are open and, and some of these restrictions are easing. That would be great. I look forward to sharing another meal and glass of wine with you, Danny. <laughs> thank you, Pam. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company. And remember to check out the non-profit website, possumsonline.com, for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the Possums programs. As together, we grow joy in early life. Hope you tune in again soon. Bye for now.